To the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are back from Vegas, back from the NFL Draft. What a exciting, fun two days it was to be out there. My first draft ever being there in person, either as a fan or thankfully I was there for work covering it. Las Vegas was completely awesome. A great environment, tons of fans, a lot of great energy. And what you can really ask for from any draft a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty. We really didn't know when the first quarterback was going to go, what receivers were going to go, which teams, even the Jaguars. We had an idea it was going to be Trayvon Walker, but was exactly going to be Trayvon Walker? We didn't really know. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of question marks, a lot of energy. So it was, for me at least, and just overall the last few days, a lot of fun, a big whirlwind, and nice to finally see now the pieces fall where they are. Nice to finally stop speculating who could be drafted where. And now we get to start analyzing and evaluating the teams that did a good draft, teams that did a bad draft, and some of the big prospects that we were questioning where they're going to go. We finally now have some answers. So it was great to be out in Vegas. Let me tell you, great to be in some beautiful, beautiful weather. 80 degrees, sunny every single day. The fans were great. The energy was great. The weather was great. It was by far a lot of fun, but also, it's great to be back here. Stunk that I had to miss Thursday's show to get you ready for the draft, but very exciting now to be back here on this Monday to recap everything that went down. As a reminder, we're coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Now, with those great pizza, hot heaters, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Let's go into what everyone wants to know. That is, who won the draft, who lost the draft. Well, for me, at least if we're talking especially round number one, a lot of teams had good round ones, the Jets, the Giants. For me, I think the biggest winner of round one were the Philadelphia Eagles. You look at Howie Roseman, general manager of the Eagles. When they had two first-round picks, I don't think you could ask Howie Roseman to do any better with those two first-round picks than getting a freak of nature in Jordan Davis from Georgia, and then, oh yeah, by the way, getting a stud receiver in A.J. Brown. Let's start with A.J. Brown and getting that trade from the Titans to uh, Philly. Because what the Eagles are getting now is a known commodity. right? The draft is a lot of fun. There's always a lot of good prospects. But the reality is, whether it is the number one overall pick or whether it's Mr. Irrelevant, the, the draft is a crapshoot. Like We can project, we can analyze, we can assume players either play well in the NFL or struggle in the NFL, but it is really a gamble because we don't truly know how their skills will translate from college to NFL until we see it. So the draft, even for the most polished prospect, is still a gamble because it's no guarantee. Well, when you are trading players, at least, and getting an established player like A.J. Brown, you are getting a known commodity and you know what you are getting, which is what you can ask for. That's all you can ask for. And what Philly is getting is an extremely good receiver, now going to be the number one option in Philly for a long time to come. A.J. Brown's been in the NFL three years. 
Two out of those three years so far, he's been a thousand yard receiver. He's a physical player. He's a good route runner. He's a big target. He's just a big target for Jalen Hurts and whoever's going to be the quarterback after Jalen Hurts. He's a good compliment so far to what they have in Devontae Smith and Quez Watkins. So this was a tremendous get by the Eagles and by Harry Roseman. A relatively cheap um, in terms of compensation going up a first and third on pick. And in terms of paying A.J. Brown, four years, $100 million, 25 mil basically uh, a season. That's a pretty good deal for a receiver of his age being only 24 years old. And so for the production he has shown, which has been consistent and good through the first three years. That is a, a great, great trade for Harry Roseman and a great move by the Eagles. Because what it does for me, it's not even about 2022, honestly, this trade. It's about the future. Because what it does is for me, it puts the Eagles in the catbird seat moving forward to get a quarterback. I don't think Jalen Hurts is the guy long term. He's going to get 2022. I think he deserves to get 2022. Do I think he's going to play so well that he's going to be without a doubt the Eagles starter for the next decade? I don't. So now when you start looking ahead past 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025... This Eagles team is a very attractive landing spot if you're a disgruntled quarterback. We'll see. I think Kyler Murray and the Cardinals will get an extension done this offseason. If not, if things go haywire and Kyler's also all of a sudden upset and maybe next offseason it's kind of like Russell Wilson where this year is in Arizona and next year is traded. Well, if you're Kyler, there's not many better landing spots you're the go-to right now than the Eagles. And you're Lamar Jackson who, we'll get to the Ravens here in a little bit, was not very happy with the Marquise Hollywood Brown trade, a trading way his number one wide receiver, and doesn't have a contract uh, extension done yet. If you're Lamar Jackson and you're upset with the Ravens, well, you look at the Eagles, good O-line, solid running back, some good receivers, that's a very good landing spot. And let's just say Kyler stays in Arizona. Let's say Lamar stays in Baltimore. That's okay. Because the Eagles next year have two first-round picks. And whether it's Bryce Young, whether it's C.J. Stroud, D.J. Uwe Ungalale from Clemson, whether it's Spencer Rattler, I could go on and on. Keating Slovis, maybe. Whatever quarterback really kind of develops and gets, you know, high the draft boards next year, the Eagles have two first-round picks. They have a lot of draft capital to make a move and get that guy. So whether it's trying to land a disruptive quarterback or whether it's drafting a quarterback, the Eagles next year are in a tremendous position to develop a young quarterback to have them be their guy, that guy in Philly for the next decade. And it's all because of that A.J. Brown trade to where now you have a great wide receiver duo with Brown and Devontae Smith. You have a really solid O-line in front blocking for that quarterback. This is a team right now that is built, again, Kind of similar to the Broncos. Not as deep, not as rich uh, across all positions. But a team that truly is ready to win and just needs that quarterback to take them to the next level. So for me, Philly now, this this trade of A.J. Brown makes a big winner more for even the future than even just 2022. Like, I do think the Cowboys are still the team to beat in the NFC East. I do think, though, that the Eagles are a playoff team. But man, this nucleus, this young nucleus that is developing an offense in Philly is something that is going to be special. Now highlighted by A.J. Brown, and it's something that's going to be very attractive for quarterbacks to either play for if you're a young guy in the draft or if you want to get traded there. Uh, Very attractive. So for me, this is a great move, not just for the immediate future and getting Jalen Hurts a number one target and helping this offense you know, get even more explosive in 2022. This is a, a major move that I like even more for the future 
than in 2022. And not just A.J. Brown, by the way, getting him was a nice move for the Eagles, but also drafting Jordan Davis at 13. This guy's a literal freak of nature. He is big. He is fast. He's disruptive. He's going to be a menace in the middle of that defensive line for the next decade. So you look, the Eagles come in with two first-round picks, and you come out of it with Jordan Davis, one of the, the freak athletes of this draft, and you get A.J. Brown, a known commodity at receiver, two of the three years, but a 1,000-yard receiver, big, strong, consistent. That's a major win. Major, major, major win for the Eagles. So for me, they're the biggest winner here of round number one. The biggest loser is we're going to stay with this trade here and kind of stay in this area because I think the biggest loser by far are the Tennessee Titans. Like this trade from Tennessee's perspective and giving up A.J. Brown getting just a first and a third back doesn't make any sense to me. Like right now, the Titans are not a playoff team after this trade. They're not. And I don't get the direction they want to go in. Right now, they have a very limited short shelf life to contend for a Super Bowl with Derrick Henry as their number one option offense. They built their offense around a running back. That's on you. And now, compared to whether it's a quarterback or compared to a receiver, when you build your offense around a running back, you now have a shorter lifespan to have success and win a Super Bowl than if you built around a quarterback or a receiver because their you know longevity obviously is a lot longer in the NFL than a running back. So when you have... Derrick Henry in your prime, uh, in his prime right now, you got to go all out, in my opinion, to capitalize on that. And instead, the Titans take a massive step back. And I don't get why. I don't get why you don't want to pay A.J. Brown $25 million a year. I don't get why that you want to take away Ryan Tannehill's number one option on offense and make his job harder. And I don't get why in an AFC where a lot of the teams have gotten better, in your own division, the Colts have gotten better, while you would willingly take a step back and trade away your best receiver for uh, two draft picks. It doesn't make any sense to me. And look, I get, you know, if you are a uh, Tennessee Titans, let's say, fan, or a Tennessee Titans uh, defender, you could say, well, Ryan, look at last year. Derrick Henry missed nine games. His team won 12 games and had the number one seed in the AFC. They are still good. They could still win games without their best player. And that was without Derrick Henry. I get it. But here's what the Tennessee Titans need. They need Ryan Tannehill to be good. I get they're built on a running back. And guess what? Derrick Henry for me, That's I always get wary of him every year because there's so much mileage on his tires already that the more you kind of run him to the ground, the more he's prone to get banged up like he did last year. And if that happens again, if Derrick Henry goes down for four, five, six, seven, eight games, like he did last year, you need Ryan Tannehill to be good. And we know Ryan Tannehill is not a very good quarterback to begin with. He needs Derrick Henry to play really well in order to have success. He needs a solid receiver on the outside to throw the ball to in order for him to have success. Last year at A.J. Brown. This year is nobody. So you are going to need Ryan Tannehill to be even better than it was last year. And you are making his job even harder than it has to be. How is Ryan Tannehill going to be better this year when he doesn't even have the best receiver? That's not happening. So when you look at this Tennessee Titans roster, trading away A.J. Brown, even though, again, this is an offense that's built on running the ball first to Derrick Henry, even though last year without their number one option on offense for over half the season, they still won 12 games and still were able to get the number one seed in the AFC. I don't think they are a playoff team now with A.J. Brown. 
Ryan Tannehill can't be trusted. He's not a very good quarterback. Now he has no real weapon on that side to throw the ball to. Everyone else in the AFC got better. The Colts in their own division have gotten better than the Titans. To me, the Titans are not a playoff team. And I don't get why they decided to take a step back. And now, with a short shelf life of Derrick Henry, where you have, you know, he's on the back end of his prime. I don't get this move from Tennessee. I don't get how, if you are John Robinson, the GM, or Mike Vrabel, the head coach, how this makes sense for you. How trading away a 24-year-old wide receiver makes you a better football team. Titans are not making the playoffs. They made a big mistake. And for me, they're the biggest loser of the draft. One more quick winner I want to hit on here. This is not a popular winner, but I think they are, in fact, a winner. That's the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens did something on Thursday night that I think is very wise, and it's what good teams do in the NFL. They leaned into their strengths. The Ravens are no dummies. They know what they're built upon. They know their recipe for success. The Ravens win by running the ball and playing good defense, and they bolstered those two areas more on Thursday night. Now, the headline is that, yes, they traded away Hollywood Brown. They traded away Lamar Jackson's number one receiver. And I'm sure you were on Twitter. You saw Lamar Jackson was not very happy. He's tweeting up a storm. He's very frustrated. He's questioning the move. He's upset. Even though Lamar Jackson is upset, this was the right move. Hollywood Brown, he's too inconsistent as a wide receiver. He has just one 1,000-yard season so far in his three years. Too many drops, and too many times he disappears from games. So, like, too many times you're looking and it goes, oh, who can Lamar throw to? And Hollywood Brown's just out of sight, out of mind. Not getting open. Not taking over a game. So, for me, the Ravens trading him away is a win because now you avoid paying him as salaries rocket and increase. You avoid any drama of him trying to hold out or force a uh, trade or, or get a new deal. And, in the process, you somehow got a first-round pick for an inconsistent receiver in Hollywood Brown, and you use that to draft Tyler Linderbaum, the center out of Iowa. So guess what? While Lamar might be frustrated that his number one receiver has gotten, he thinks that's a detriment to the offense. In fact, trading away Hollywood Brown and getting a center to bolster the offensive line, bolster the running game, open up more holes in the running game, and oh yeah, by the way, protect Lamar Jackson more when he's going back to pass, that is a win. That benefits Lamar. The Ravens know what wins, and again, they are never going to be a team that airs the ball out, that throws the ball 40 times a game, that's going to win games and Super Bowls on Lamar Jackson's right arm. So the Ravens realized, you know what? Wide receivers are not as important to us as offensive linemen. Not every team can say that. Not every team is built the way the Ravens are built. For this specific team and this specific offense, offensive linemen are are in greater value to the Ravens than wide receivers. They did the right move. Get an inconsistent receiver out. Get a center that, again, can protect Lamar Jackson better. Open up more running lanes for not only himself, but the running backs he's handed the ball off to. Is a bigger benefit to Lamar Jackson than having Hallowed Brown on the outside. Now, look, the Ravens do need a receiver. Like Rashad Bateman, Devin DuVernay, James Prochet. That trio is not going to cut it. But, but, again, the, uh, the passing game is less important to the Ravens than for other teams. So they... In, in getting Linderbaum and trading away Hollywood Brown, we're able to solidify a strength and make it even stronger. That, to me, is why the Ravens made the right move. Not to mention, they also were able to draft Kyle Hamilton, which, look, if you look at scouting reports, if you read mock drafts, if you look at 
analysis heading into the draft. Kyle Hamilton was one of the best players, just pure football players in the draft. Safety, 6'4", he's rangy, good ball skills, hard hitter, physical. He has a lot of great attributes about him. The only issue with Kyle Hamilton is safety is a position that's getting a little bit marginalized now in the NFL. But everything else writes, you know, home run for Kyle Hamilton. He's a projected potentially top three pick. So you get at 14, and when you see the Ravens at where they were able to draft him, and I'm like you, this to me feels like a, a pro bowl for the next decade written all over. So the Ravens solidify two of their best strengths uh, on their team. They get better in running the ball because now you get a center in Tyler, uh, Tyler Linderbaum who will, again, help open up running lanes and make that rushing attack even more prolific, uh, prolific than it already is. And you get a, a great rangy safety in Kyle Hamilton that make this defense even better. The Ravens win games by running the ball and playing defense, and they solidified those two areas. So I think, the, to me, the Ravens are a winner in this draft, even though trading away Hollywood Brown, let's say, was not the, the decision Lamar Jackson was a fan of. Let's just, we'll say it very kindly. But I think the Ravens are still winners in the draft. The biggest winner, though, for me, are the Eagles. Biggest loser are the Titans. How about yourself here? Who is the biggest winner from the NFL draft weekend, in your opinion? You could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Right on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. And we're also live on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Network. You can right there on the comment section in YouTube, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Who was the biggest winner from the NFL draft uh, over the weekend? Who's the biggest loser? Was there a team that that is right now down bad more than the Titans? I don't think so. But how about yourself? Again, we're on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. We're on Facebook. You can find the live stream of the show uh, on w, uh, on the Worldwide Sports Network Facebook page. And we're also on Twitter, uh, on YouTube. We're there at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So we'll get your NFL draft reactions from the weekend. And when we return, we had two game ones in the NBA yesterday. The Grizzlies blow game number one to the to the Warriors, and the Bucks. Boy, were they impressive in their dominant victory over the Celtics. We will discuss both when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We got ourselves some breaking news on this Monday morning as we have finally found at least the destination for one of the the big-time names still on the free agent market, and that is the Honey Badger. Tyron Matthew has finally found a home. He is now signing, or or at least reportedly signing, according to Ian Rappaport, with the New Orleans Saints. So nice little signing there by the Saints. Um, And this is, to me, a great landing spot. This is a perfect win-win. All right, for Matthew... He was obviously very upset he was leaving the Chiefs. And now you go to a tremendous spot if you're the hunting badger and go into the Saints defense that is uh, tenacious, that is nasty, that's full of talent. And you look at it, right? You are now adding one of the still one of the best ball hawking safeties, one of the most instinctual safeties in all the NFL to a Saints secondary that has uh, Marshawn Lattimore has been a tremendous corner so far in New Orleans. Marcus May has been solid. 
CJ Gardner Johnson, the the uh, the instigator, if you will, right? He's always getting underneath the skin of opposing wide receivers. This to me is already defense um, led by Dennis Allen that we have seen four times now last two years completely throw Tom Brady for a loop. In the regular season, even in the one playoff game when they met in divisional round two years ago, Tom Brady has yet to figure out this Saints defense and really has been put in the blender. He's absolutely been put in the blender. So when you look at now the Saints and their how they drafted, right? They they trade up to get Chris Olave. They they addressed more offense in the draft than defense, especially early on in the first round. But this team, led by Jameis Winston, is going to have to lean on their defense in 2022. Jameis to me is a guy that can't be trusted, especially now with Sean Payton out. I thought last year when he went to New Orleans, this team would be a playoff team in part because of Sean Payton's ability to get the most out of a quarterback. Jameis has a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to channel that and get out a lot of the bad decisions uh, while keeping in some of the good. I thought Sean Payton was one of the few uh, head coaches that could do that. And when Jameis Winston was on the field, he was doing pretty good. 14 touchdowns, three picks. This Saints team was rolling along. As we know, injuries. They had four different quarterbacks playing, and they missed the playoffs. And that was just kind of a miracle. They went 9-8. and eight. And give a lot of credit to Sean Payton. But with him now not being there... I will say this now transitions to more of a defensive first team in 2022. The NFC is wide open outside of the Bucks and uh, the, the Rams and the Packers. There's really no other team you feel really good about. And even the Packers, you feel eh about. They'll win that division. But when you look at at least the three wild card spots that are open, the Saints are right there. And this is a team that I think, credit to Mickey Loomis, wisely realized where their strengths are, and where they're going to win football games more times than not in 2022. And that's on their defense. That's leaning on defense was a really good front four that can get after the quarterback, a really good safety or a really good secondary that now gets even better with Charles Matthew going to New Orleans, reportedly going to New Orleans, according to Ian Rappaport. So that is smart by Mickey Loomis to address the defense and get one of the best players out there still in the free agent market that uh, allows this team to get deeper and better at a very important position. Look, I know Pete Carmichael is still there, the offense coordinator for the Saints, even though Sean Payton retired, but I don't think you can rely too much on this offense and rely on Jameis Wentz to get the job done. I know they have Alvin Kamara. I know Michael Thomas is coming back. They just drafted Chris Olave. This, though, to me, is still a defensive-led team first, and that's why I love this signing by the Saints again, Teron Matthews. So just, just, uh, just in case you're tuning in in, Ian Rapport just a few minutes ago, breaking the news that one of the big-time free agents still left on the market is now coming off. Teron Matthew signing with the New Orleans Saints. He will will get the uh, terms of the deal for you when it's official. Now, it's not official. It should be official in the next uh, few days is what Rapport is saying. But so far, a very nice pickup by the Saints here on the aftermath of the draft. So we'll circle back to that conversation here in a little bit. But I do want to give you some Game 1 reactions in the NBA uh, as we had the uh, conference semifinals start yesterday. And let's start in the West. To me, the Grizzlies absolutely blew Game number 1. Everything broke in their favor. Everything was going their way for them to take a 1-0 series lead in this best 7 series. And they blew it. Now, you can look at this game of one of two ways. The Warriors won the game or the Grizzlies blew it. For me, I'm saying more blew it because this game wasn't decided by a Clay Thompson three late in the fourth quarter that eventually was the game-winning shot that led them uh, to the win. This game wasn't 
one by Steph Curry's defense kind of poking the ball away from John Morant and Lakers is trying to go down and take the lead. This game wasn't won by John Morant missing a layup at the end of the game, at the buzzer that would have given the Grizzlies the win. This game was won by the Warriors, but more importantly, lost by the Grizzlies on the offensive rebounding side and second chance points. Those were the difference in which the Warriors had the advantage. The Warriors dominated in an area that should have been dominated by the Grizzlies. Like yesterday, the Warriors grabbed 16 offensive rebounds, which led to 26 second chance points. That's where the game is lost right there if you're the Grizzlies. That area right there, allowing 16 offensive rebounds and 26 second chance points to a team that is smaller than you is unacceptable. You can't do it. And you can't give a team with great shooters, with sharp shooters like Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and now you even see the emergence of Jordan Poole, another 30-point game, this time coming off the bench for Poole. You cannot give those three shooters second and third opportunities to get look if they miss the first one. And that's exactly what the Grizzlies did, and that's exactly the reason why they lost. And it's extremely frustrating if you're a Grizzlies fan or a Grizzlies believer slash gambler is because you look on paper going into this game, going to this series, they should have a massive advantage on the glass. That is part of the reason why I picked the Grizzlies to win the series. Say Grizzlies in seven, and one of the, the, for me, the advantages Memphis had over the Warriors was that they were the bigger and physical team, and more physical team. And they have Jaron Jackson Jr., you have Brandon Clark. You have Kyle Anderson. I know Stephen Adams didn't play, but he will return shortly. When he returns, he'll be in the lineup, and he gives uh, Memphis a size advantage down low. And that should lead to more just rebounding in general, but less second and third opportunities for the Warriors to get. Look at the Grizzlies. They were the best, the best rebounding team in the regular season. They don't allow a ton of second chance opportunities. They don't, you know, give teams... Uh, extra looks, and they themselves crash the board, especially on the offensive glass as well, to give themselves second and third opportunities. And you look on the other side, the Warriors this season, the regular season, were one of the worst offensive rebounding teams. They struggled. Again, they're not very big. They have Kavon Looney starting at the center, but he doesn't really play too many minutes, and we've seen really a small lineup emerge when healthy and when not ejected, which gets in a second, of Clay, Steph, Jordan Poole, Draymond, and Andrew Wiggins. It's a very small lineup. So again, they are more built on sharpshooting and knocking down the shots than crashing the glass and getting second and third opportunities. So the Grizzlies had a massive advantage to where they really should have and could have limited the Warriors. But instead, this game was lost because they allowed the Warriors to dominate the offensive glass. And you just can't allow that to happen. Like, look at who, look at who are the most active players in the offensive glass. Andrew Wiggins, Gary Payton II, and Jordan Poole. They should not be getting and digging out these rebounds over guys like Jaron Jackson Jr., over guys like Brandon Clark. Hell, even John Moran's always active on the on the boards and, and collects a lot of rebounds. If you're the, the Grizzlies, you have to dominate in the rebounding department, not only to get yourself second and third looks, but prevent the Warriors from getting multiple chances to score. And they couldn't do so. They had the advantage and they couldn't take it, you know, they had the uh, upper hand and they couldn't take advantage of that. Their strength and the Warriors' weakness 
ended up being the difference because the Warriors took what was supposed to be their weakness and actually built it up into their strength in terms of dominating the offensive glass. 16 offensive rebounds led to 26 second chance points. That's where the game is there's won, or at least in my opinion, lost by the Grizzlies. You look can look. Look, Steph, uh, Clay had a nice open look for three. You can look at Morant, one getting pickpocketed by Steph uh, late and then missing an open layup and having a chance, losing by one point. You could say, oh, that, that's where the game boils down to. But you just get one extra offensive rebound or one extra defensive rebound that limits the Warriors getting an extra offensive rebound. That is where the game is won right there. You just get one hustle play. And I forget who was on the broadcast yesterday. That brought up a great point. Whether it was Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy. I apologize, so I don't want to give them the wrong man credit. So I'll just say it was one of them. But they made a great point in that the the Grizzlies are winning this series uh, in the hustle department, right? They're going to beat the Warriors. They're not going to outshoot them. They're not going to you know go toe to toe in a three point shooting contest. They are going to out hustle them, meaning getting the loose balls, diving on the floor, you know, getting those extra opportunities, whether it's on the offensive end, getting second chance points, or whether it's preventing and limiting the Warriors' second and third opportunities from happening. That is where the Grizzlies are going to win this series, and they couldn't do so in Game One. They could not. A lot of standing around. The Warriors, to their credit, out-hustled the Grizzlies for most of this game. It was a big, big, big missed opportunity by Memphis. And especially, another reason why this was a blown opportunity by Memphis, more than kind of tipping the hat to the Warriors, is because you had Draymond Green ejected in the second quarter. First of all, very soft ejection. This is the playoffs. I get short. You know, he struck him in the face and pulled his jersey down. But there was no intent, in my opinion, that was leading to an egregious act where it was intentional. I think for me, flagrant two and ejection should be let, should be saved for only intentional plays, especially in the playoffs. Where if he basically wound up and punched Brandon Clark in the face or tackled him like it was a football play. If there is intent there and you can clearly judge intent, for me, that should lead to an ejection. Anything else, if there's any sort of question, you leave him in the game. This These games are too important and too big of a moment to now be ejecting someone for what is just a hard foul. So the referees gave the Grizzlies a gift. An egregious gift was given to Memphis with the ejection of Draymond Green. So already, a team that lacks size in the Warriors just lost their best defender for a half. And you have to win that game 10 times out of 10 if you're the Grizzlies. You are never going to get a better opportunity in this game to win, or in this series, to win a game than you had in game one. You had the size advantage all, all series long, and you had the advantage of the of the Warriors, who aren't a great defensive team to begin with, losing their best defender for a half. You have to take advantage and win that game. And instead, they completely blew it and now gave the Warriors extra confidence moving forward. I'm still sick with the Grizzlies to win this series, but man, game one was just a massive, massive blown opportunity. That should have been theirs. I'm still going to pick also the Celtics to take down the Bucks in their series in the East. But boy, nothing but respect, nothing but props for the defensive effort the Bucks showed yesterday in Game 1 in Boston. Because you know what Milwaukee did? Milwaukee gave the Celtics a taste of their own medicine. They, they threw in the face of the Celtics what the Celtics did to the Nets in that first round series. They made every single shot tough. There was every single shot contested, no open looks. The paint was basically closed off. The Bucks basically forced the Celtics to become a three-point shooting team. 
It was a three-point shooting contest, at least on Boston's offensive end. And that's essentially how, for how good defensively the Celtics were able to play against the Nets, where Kevin Durant's life was hell. Whether it was Jalen Brown, whether it was Jason Tatum, whether it was Marcus Smart, Kevin Durant never got one clean look the entire series. And that is exactly what the Bucs did to the entire Celtics team yesterday. No shot was, con- uh, was clean. Every shot, you know, there was a hand in the face, there was a contest, there was no really, you know, breathing room for any of the Celtics players on offense to get off a good shot. And again, they completely, if you're the Bucs, closed off the paint. This is a Celtics team that, sure, they, they could shoot threes and knock them down, but they are primarily a team that drives down the lane, that is able... It's my... Someone's at the door. Oh, I guess they don't know that the show is live from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Would not be ringing the door right now. So they're going to have to wait. But... The Celtics are a team that does get in the paint, does drive hard to the rim, and do get a lot of their points down low. And it was completely, completely walled off. Tatum didn't get an easy look all game. Jalen Brown was contained. And after getting so many easy drives, so many good looks near the rim against the Nets, the paint was totally basically locked off. There was there was ropes around the paint, and the Celtics were not allowed in. The Bucks were the bouncers. Giannis was the bouncer. Brooke Lopez was the bouncer. Said, sorry, boys. Clubs closed for game number one. You look at the shot selection for the Celtics. They took a franchise record 50. 53 pointers on Sunday. Not only is that a franchise record, we look at their total shots 84. The Celtics took 16 more three pointers than twos. That's not a formula that the Celtics can do. That's a formula for the Warriors to win. That's not a formula for success for Boston. 16 more threes than twos is exactly what Milwaukee wants. Now, this, this is a Celtics team, by the way, that's middle of the pack in terms of three-point field goal percentage. So they're, they're an okay three-point shooting team. They can hit them when they're open. But to solely rely on the three is not a recipe for success for the Bucs or for the Celtics, but that's exactly what the Bucs forced them to do. They cut off the paint early on to where the second half was essentially just 3-3-3-3-3. It was very impressive by Giannis, by Drew Holiday, by Brooke Lopez, their defensive effort in completely walling off the paint and forcing the Celtics to become a, a one-dimensional offense. For how great the Celtics' defense was and how confused, frustrated the Nets were, that is exactly how the Celtics looked in game one yesterday. The Bucs were able to flip the script and give them a taste of their own medicine. Now, I think in game number two, the Celtics will be more prepared. I think they're going to win. But a very impressive start, especially when you consider Chris Middleton was not on the court, dealing with that MCL injury. He's not playing. A very impressive effort in game number one from the Bucs on the road. Celtics, I think, still will win the series, and I do think will win uh, game number two. But a very tremendous start for the Bucks on the road in game number one. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, I want to discuss the impact of Joel Embiid's now thumb injury, orbital fracture, and concussion. Can the Sixers withstand the absence of Joel Embiid as he's set to miss a few games to start this series against the Heat, which does start tonight? We'll discuss when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 
Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. One of the best songs for me in all of sports. Here come the Sixers. Very catchy. Sing along to it. Upbeat. Get you feeling good. The unfortunate part, though, if you're a Sixers fan, hearing that song is, well, the song may make you feel good. I'm not even a Sixers fan. Makes me feel good. Very catchy. I've actually humming it the last few weeks. Not even really liking the Sixers at all. But while the song kind of makes you feel good, there's no reason right now to feel good if you're a Sixers fan. The Joel Embiid injury for me is too much to overcome. And I think the series over before it even starts against the Heat. Even though Joel Embiid is really still set to return at some point this series, his absence to start the series, to me, is going to be too much for the Sixers to withstand. And I don't think they're going to beat the Heat um, even when they had Embiid, but especially now with him missing the first few games of this series. Sixers are not built right now to withstand the absence of their star. This, this We have seen teams like the Suns. Right, be able to whether it's Devin Booker, whether it's Chris Paul missing time throughout the year, they have been able to win games at one of their stars. We just saw the Bucks yesterday win game number one and close out the Bulls in the first round of the playoffs without Chris Middleton. The Sixers, to me, though, are not a team that's built to win games without Joel Embiid. They don't have consistent enough shooting. They don't have good enough defense to stay afloat while Embiid is out. Look at a guy like James Harden. He should be the guy you lean on, you rely on in a situation like this to take over the game and lead the Sixers to victory. Well, we know he can't lead teams to victory uh, Lead teams to victory in the playoffs. And there's an argument of if he even wants to. Like, I don't think, forget about can't. I don't think he will be able to carry a team or wants to be able to carry a team uh, in the postseason moving forward. Tyrese Maxey has been great so far in this postseason. But now that if he's the number one option, right? If James Harden uh, still takes a backseat and Tyrese Maxey is the one that has to take over uh, the game, I'm not believing he can actually do so uh, and carry this offense on a consistent basis now for the Sixers these next few weeks. So when you see the uh, Shams report on Friday that Joel Embiid is set to miss an indefinite amount of time, when you see Adrian Wojnarowski at least put a timeline on it yesterday that Embiid is not traveling to Miami for games one and two. He could possibly return for either games three or four in Philly, but it's really no guarantee because he has to clear concussion protocol. And this week he's seeing a doctor about his orbital fracture and discuss, you know, going forward uh, how to treat it. I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling confident that the Sixers can withstand, even if it's just two or three games in this series, that to me is still not enough for them to withstand uh, to by the time NB comes back, they can win the series. Because the Sixers, from what we've seen, cannot win without Joel Embiid for an extended stretch. Miami's defense, I think, will be too suffocating. They don't have enough, again, consistent scoring. And by the time Embiid comes back, whether it's game three or game four, I think the hole is going to be too big already for the Sixers to try to overcome. Look how this Heat, we talk about Heat defense being suffocating. Look at what Miami did to Trey Young in round number one. The goal for uh, Miami against the Hawks was to make anyone but Trey Young beat them. And you know what? That plan worked to absolute perfection. He looked more like Trey Bum instead of Trey Young. This is a, a guy who, as we know, last year in the playoffs, led up against the Knicks, played well against the Sixers uh, on their way to the Eastern Conference Finals. This year, regular season, averaged 28.4 points per game. Playing well, shooting well. Well, in that series against the Heat, Trey Young averaged just 15.4 points per game. Trey Young, in the regular season, shot 46% from the field. 
And the playoffs against the Heat, 31.9%. So 28 points per game to 15 points per game. 46% from the field in the regular season compared to just 31% from the field against the Heat in round number one. He's a 38% uh, three-point shooter. We know Trey Young can light it up from deep. He does so uh, on a regular basis. He shot just 18% from three in the postseason this year. In the five games against the Heat. So Miami, where there's Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, Bam Adebayo, this was a swarming defense that put the clamps on Trey Young and said, anyone but Trey, beat us. And I think Miami's going to do the same exact thing to the Sixers in this series. So whether it's Tyrese Max, so they say, okay, we're, we're taking Tyrese away, everyone else but him, beat us. Whether it's James Harden, we are taking James Harden's facilitating and playmaking away. Now, hey, Tyrese Maxey, go create on your own and go get a bucket every single time. Whether it's one of those two players, whoever they decide to pick until Joel Embiid gets back, I'm not relying on guys like Tobias Harris, Danny Green, George Yang to be able to carry this offense and play well until Embiid is able to get back. And even when Embiid does come back, if the Heat center and focus on Embiid, well, okay, can James Harden, you trust James Harden to go off for 30 points to carry this offense? I'm not. This Sixers team is not built to withstand the loss of a superstar like Joel Embiid. So I think the Heat are winning this series, I will say, in five. I don't think they're winning this series, the Sixers were, anyway, if Embiid was healthy. But now, especially with him going to miss at least the first two games, potentially three games, potentially four games, depending on how he progresses from concussion protocol and how his orbital fracture is looking when the doctor takes a look at it later this week, I don't think this is a series where the Sixers are going to have much success on offense. And again, it goes back to the point I made last week. When we first found out about the thumb injury uh, that Abid was dealing with that he that he uh, hurt in game number three where he has a torn ligament uh, in his thumb. This only highlights the fact that going forward, starting this offseason, the Philly front office has to build this team in the eye with the assumption that Joel Embiid will never be healthy in the postseason again. He has always dealt with something for the most part at the end of the regular season, and the times he has been healthy at the end of regular uh, at the end of the regular season, he has gotten hurt in the playoffs. So if you are Philly with the ultimate goal of being a title, you now have to start designing your roster and start looking for players that can carry this team with Embiid not being a hundred percent. Because right now, the every single postseason he's been banged up or hurt. His credit, he hasn't missed many games. Right, this is a rare opportunity, or rare circumstance, I should say where Embiid is actually going to be held out of the lineup and not be playing uh, on the court. But you have to now start building your team if you are Daryl Moore, the GM, if you're president of basketball ops, and Elton Brand, the GM. You have to start building your team with the assumption Embiid is never going to be healthy. Because if they don't, if they keep on assuming, oh, well, this year just stinks, next year you know, we'll hopefully get a better break and Embiid will be healthy for the playoffs, you are going to fail like you're about to fail in this series. Because when Embiid is even limited, forget hurt and missing games, when he's even limited, there's no one else right now on this roster that can shoulder the load. Maybe Maxi develops into that guy in two or three years from now. James Harden, I don't think, will ever develop into that guy, nor do I think he actually wants to be that guy anymore. So if you continue to kind of run this team back and don't make many drastic changes, well, when injuries like this happen, you're dead in the water. 
If you are relying on Joel Embiid to be fully healthy in the postseason, you're not winning a title. So it's imperative this offseason you go find a player that way if Embiid is either out or again limited, which you have to assume he's going to be every postseason now going forward, you still have a chance to win. The Suns, their season wasn't over when Devin Booker got hurt and missed a few games. The the Bucks, their season wasn't over when Chris Middleton missed a few games uh, and still will be out so far at least early on in this Celtics series. You still have to find ways to win games with your star player hurt or out. Sixers are not built to withstand that. They need to retool their roster in order to be built to withstand that. But so far, because they're not this year, I don't think the Sixers are winning this series. And beat injury, even if it is just two games, I think that's two games too many in order for Philly to win this series. Heat in five, in large part because the Sixers cannot withstand even a short absence from their star, from their potential MVP. On the flip side, the other Western Conference semifinal get, uh, semifinal series get started tonight. You have the Mavericks and the Suns. Suns, I think, are winning the series in six. Devin Booker back in the lineup. That is a huge boost to this uh, to this roster. And the biggest reason why I do think the Suns will beat the Mavs. Now, I will say, I think I, I am wrong here. I'll admit when I'm wrong. I said probably about two weeks ago now at this point that the Suns should hold, uh, hold Devin Booker out of the lineup until the Western Conference Finals. I said they could beat the Pelicans without Devin Booker, and I thought they could beat either the Jazz or, as we know now, the Mavericks well, without Devin Booker because the Jazz, you don't trust in the postseason. And this at this point, this was without Luka playing in a game yet. I thought even when Luka returns, which ends up being game number four for the Mavericks, he would still look banged up. He would still not be playing anywhere near the Luka Doncic level in the postseason we have been accustomed to seeing the last two years. Well, I'll be honest, I'm wrong about that. Luka so far in the time he has returned has looked very good. The injury has not limited him, uh, limited him at all in which I thought it would. And he has played some good basketball so far in the three games he's returned. Helped close out the Jazz uh, in six. So I will be honest here. The Suns need Devin Booker. Their hands were more full than I thought they'd be against the Pelicans. And the Mavericks, especially led by Luka Doncic, who's looking healthier than I could have anticipated at this point dealing with a calf injury. The, the Suns do need Booker. And the, the biggest stat I look at at his return in game number six is that the points... It's the minutes. He played 32 minutes in that closeout game number six. That to me is the most important stat because that shows you he's not really on a minutes restriction and he's able, even though he was missing a few games, able to come back and that hamstring is not truly as big of an issue or as big of a worry now going forward um, as maybe you thought. Right, 32 minutes is a, a substantial amount of minutes. That's a good amount of playing time in order uh, for Booker to already be back in the lineup, and you think those minutes are only going to go up. So he's close to playing what is going to be a full load anyway, whether it's game number two, game three, when he's finally ramped up to kind of, you know, be clear to play 40-plus minutes. That is great for Phoenix. So Devin Booker is back. Shouldn't be really too limited in this series, which for me is the reason why uh, the Suns, I think, will win this series in six. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a very fun series for sure. But the health of Devin Booker is the biggest key why the Suns, I think, are going to the Western Conference Finals. And the lack of health for Joel Embiid is the biggest reason why I think the Sixers are getting bounced in five games to the Heat. When we return, I'd actually love to hear your thoughts. Is there any way, in your mind, the Sixers can withstand Joel, uh, Joel Embiid's absence for two to three games, let's say, and still be able to beat the Heat? 
without their MVP playing at least in games number one and two in Miami. Love to your thoughts. Facebook, you can write on Worldwide Sports Network. You can also check us out on our show page, The Ryan Hickey Show. Like us on Facebook, The Ryan Hickey Show. Every single uh, show we go live on Monday, Thursday is posted in that group. All of the uh, clips that we post um, after the show and put out in case you miss anything, you can find on Facebook as well. So make sure you check us out, The Ryan Hickey Show. Throw us a like there. All of the content from... In one location on Facebook, right there, the Ryan Hickey Show. Make sure to check us out on Twitter as well, the uh, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, and also WWSRN underscore Radio uh, on Twitter as well. On YouTube, we're live worldwide sports right network. So, can the Sixers, in your mind, in your opinion, AR withstand the loss of Joel Embiid? Love to hear your thoughts. And when we return, five teams took a quarterback in the NFL draft. Right, we're only going to talk about the 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 quarterbacks that were. Rumored to go in the first round, the most prolific quarterbacks of the draft. There are five of them, five teams took a quarterback. We will give grades to each team that drafted a quarterback when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So we had really the top five quarterbacks, right, go in the NFL draft. Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, Matt Corral. Those are the the five big names. Those are the five quarterbacks that potentially, at different points in the offseason, different mock drafts, depending on what you read, could have won the first round. So let's when we're giving out NFL grades here. I want to give out grades for each quarter, uh, each team that drafted a quarterback. Was it a good move or was it a bad move? Those are really kind of the five we're going to focus on. No disrespect to Bailey Zappi or Brock Purdy, Mister Relevant in the NFL draft. We'll leave those. We'll leave those guys out and focus really on the main names that people know and people care about. So let's give each team: the Steelers, the Panthers, the Falcons, the uh, the Titans. And um, and the Commanders, my apologies, Washington fans. Let's give those five teams a grade on whether they made the right move or the wrong move in drafting that quarterback. Before I get started, I just want to say this right out of the gate. It was very surprising, I cannot lie. Very surprising that just one quarterback, Kenny Pickett, win the first two rounds. I am very shocked it played out that way. Now, this time last week, I was advocating that no team should draft a quarterback in the first round, and that almost came to fruition, right? The Steelers are the only one at pick number 20. But even though I didn't think any team should draft a quarterback in the first round, I really thought NFL teams were not going to be able to help themselves. But we know quarterbacks get elevated um, in draft boards in importance because of, you know, how uh, critical they are to winning to where even if teams, you know, don't have a high grade on them, quarterbacks will still go earlier than they should just because of the importance of the position. So I really did think more teams were going to take a quarterback early. And when only one QB went in the first round, I really thought there was going to be a major run early. If you checked out any of my videos on social media, whether it's on Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or on Instagram, same thing, Ryan Hickey Show on IG. Put out a few uh, videos from Vegas uh, where I was there covering and helping produce our uh, draft show at CBS Sports Radio. Told you right away. Round number two getting started, I thought three quarterbacks would go off the board in the first 10 picks. You had teams like the Titans, you had teams like the Buccaneers maybe that could have 
uh, gotten a replacement for Tom Brady. The Seahawks had two picks um, right away to start the second round. I really thought a lot of those teams would take a quarterback in the second round, and there would be a run early. Well, it could have been more wrong about that one. No quarterback goes in the second round. So while I did not think a team should draft a quarterback in round number one, I was, I will admit, very surprised that it almost played out that way. Where one quarterback and Kenny Pickett went through the first two rounds. I think the NFL did it right. I think this delay on taking quarterbacks was the right move. Because again, when you see everyone saying the same thing. But these quarterbacks are not ready. There's really no standout QB. No real NFL ready quarterback in this draft. Don't take one. And for the most part, teams did it. So with that said, very surprised that we had such few quarterbacks go early. I do think that was the right move. So let's start with the five quarterbacks that did go right away. The Steelers drafting Kenny Pickett. To me, this move's a D. This move deserves a D grade. Because you know what Kenny Pickett is? He's a eh, prospect. That's it. You don't want to be taking a eh, prospect in the first round. Kenny Pickett to me is not going to be a good NFL quarterback. Because for the most part of his you know college career, he was never a good college quarterback. Like most of his production at Pitt was average. I understand the final year, the most recent year, Kenny Pickett had 42 touchdown passes. He threw for over 4,300 yards. I get that. But that's more of the anomaly than, you know, the uh, than how things went for Kenny Pickett's career pit. Like, that's really not who he is as a quarterback. He was a four-year starter with the Panthers. So we had plenty of film, plenty uh, of tape to watch Kenny Pickett play. And for the most part, for three out of his four years as a starter at Pitt, he was an average quarterback at best. At best, where he's averaging 12 or 13 touchdown passes a game and eight or nine interceptions a, a, a season, or 12 or 13 touchdown passes a season. 12 or 13 touchdown passes a game would be incredible. But he was averaging 12 or 13 touchdown passes a season and eight or nine interceptions a season. That is average at best here. I'm not taking a quarterback for three of the four years as a starter in college, he was average at best. I'm not taking that quarterback in general, let alone in the first round. Steelers made a mistake here, especially when you consider the holes they need to address. I thought they could have gotten better on the offensive line, and there was players out there they could have taken. I thought they should have gotten better on the defensive line, and there was players out there they could have taken. So when you look at the, the quarterback room the Steelers had already, where you have Mitch Trubisky on a two-year deal, you still have Mason Rudolph there as well in the quarterback room. Whether it's Mason or whether it's Mitch, the Steelers are not a playoff team in 2022. Whether they play Kenny Pickett, doesn't matter. You're not a playoff team in 2022. So for me, what the Steelers should have done is address their holes in the trenches, shore up both sides of the line, and then focus on a quarterback of the future in 2023 when you will have a higher draft pick than you do in 2022. And Parker's, you are not making the playoffs. So the Steelers made a mistake for me in prioritizing the quarterback position first and not addressing the line, and then also taking a quarterback who for a majority of his college career, 75% of his college career, was average at best. He's not Joe Burrow. He really never showed you too many signs that you could say, oh wow, Kenny Pickett's going to be a real game-changing quarterback. The Steelers, to me, D. Eh. When you're taking an eh quarterback, that's never a good thing. Steelers made a mistake here in drafting Kenny Pickett. That's why they get a D. The Falcons drafting Desmond Ritter, the second quarterback off the board in the third round. That, you know what that move deserves? An F. The move deserves an F not because of it, Desmond Ritter, 
Now because it's in the third round, the move gets an F because the Falcons drafting a quarterback at any point in the draft to me makes no sense. But here's why. Here's how 2022 is going to play out for the Falcons. Marcus Mariota is your full-time starting quarterback. What does that mean? That means this team is going to stink. This roster stinks. You have no Matt Ryan. You have no Calvin Ridley. This roster has holes literally everywhere. They are going to be the number one overall, you know, they're going to get the number one overall pick here in 2023. They're going to be worse than the Jaguars. They're going to be worse than the Lions, worse than the Texans. This team is getting the number one overall pick next year. They're winning two to three games. They're not very good, nor really do the Falcons have any interest in winning this year. So that means when you have the number one overall pick next season, you are going to draft Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Whatever other stud quarterback emerges out of college and, and swoons and takes a Falcons heart, you are taking a quarterback and number one overall next year. Which means Desmond Ritter is back on the bench and never getting a shot to show you what he has. Why would you take a flyer on Desmond Ritter where in a year from now, you're going to draft your franchise guy? Desmond Ritter is a quarterback who's not going to play much this year. If he does play much this year, good luck, God bless you. He's not ready to play, nor is there any talent around him to help him succeed. So you are now going to, you took a quarterback in the third round where you shouldn't have done so. You're going to draft his replacement this time next year, and you are going to be the worst team in the NFL. That to me is a waste of a pick. That's why it's an F. It's no disrespect to Desmond Ritter. It's no, it's not saying that they took a quarterback too early in the third round they should have waited. To me, the Falcons taking a quarterback at any point in this draft was a waste because they are getting their franchise guy this time next year. That's why, to me, this move gets an F. The Titans, they drafted Malik Willis in round number three. Free this was an A+. A-plus by the Titans. Because it's tremendous value, but also it's tremendous self-awareness by the Titans in taking Malik Willis on the third round. Now look, I'll say this. I thought he was going to be the first quarterback off the board. I thought he was going around number one. For him to be just sitting there in round number three for the Titans, it's a great gamble to take. Because guess what? If he stinks, okay, fine, you move on. If he never develops in a year or two from now, it's a third-round pick. It's no big deal. You are then able to move on, and, and you're not sh- hamstrung to paying him either a big salary or trying to force him and kind of shoehorn him to be the franchise quarterback when he, when he doesn't you know, show you he can be. Right? Let's just be honest. First-round expectations versus third-round expectations are drastically different. Even though most people, including myself, thought he was going to be the first quarterback off the board and go in the first round, you get Malik Willis down in the third round, expectations drastically drop. To where now the pressure's off of him, to where if he, again, doesn't develop, is not very good, it's kind of not a big deal for Tennessee because you move on and find his replacement elsewhere. Not to mention you still got Ryan Tannehill there. So you're not kind of... Uh, handcuffed to Malik Willis if a better opportunity presents itself either in free agency, in a trade, or in the draft down the line. And you know what? On the flip side, if Malik Willis develops, if he shows you he can actually be a really damn good quarterback in the NFL, well, he could take this team to the next level that Ryan Tannehill couldn't do. So when I say self-awareness, the reason why I like this move so much and the reason why I'm giving the Titans an A is because after trading A.J. Brown away, after moving on from your best receiver in a what is a win now or supposed to be win now mode for the Titans when you have Derrick Henry as your number one op- option on offense, it's good for Tennessee to at least have one eye on the future. They are not, at least they're self-aware and realizing, 
All right, we traded away A.J. Brown. Ryan Tannehill's not very good. Might as well take a flyer on Malik Willis, who's just sitting here, who I'm sure Tennessee thought no shot in hell. Even at pick 26, he'd be sitting there when they traded back. But you know what? We'll take him now, and we'll see what happens. I like how they have one eye on the future and have, at least right now, a potential safety net in case Ryan Tannehill continues to stink. And the good news is, too, if you're if you're Tennessee, right, Malik Willis is very athletic, but he's also very raw. So having Ryan Tannehill there now, you allow Malik Willis to sit for at least one, maybe two years, and that's exactly what he needs. Like with Ryan Tannehill there, there's not going to be any pressure to get Willis on the field right away. You know, He's not going to be forced into action early on like he would be maybe in Carolina, like he would be maybe in Atlanta where the teams stink and the quarterbacks stink. Ryan Tannehill's not very good, but he's good enough to at least keep Malik Willis on the bench for at least a year or so. Now, kind of like Jimmy G kept Trey Lance on the bench for a year. So, Malik Willis won't be forced into action early on. He will be given the opportunity to develop, which is the best case for him to have success in Tennessee. I thought it was very interesting. So there's a report out, I believe it was by Dan Orlovsky. It was more of his opinion um, and some guys he talked to than an actual you know, official report. But he was saying that one of the reasons why Malik Willis, who again, a lot of people thought was going to go in the first round, ended up dropping to the third round was because teams, the more they talked to Malik Willis, the more they worked him out, the more you know interviews, the more tape they, they watched of him at Liberty, the more they thought it was going to be a possible two-year development plan. As we know, there's not a lot of patience in the NFL. Teams and fans want to get quarterbacks on the field ASAP. And a lot of teams, you know, front office members and fans don't have the patience to draft a quarterback and have them basically sit for two years. So this is going to be a true project for Tennessee to get um, Malik Willis you know, up to speed and, uh, and playing really well. Well, if it truly is a two-year development plan, the Titans are in the perfect spot right now to have him take his time to develop. Ryan Tannehill is on a two-year deal. Well, he has two years left on his, on his contract extension. Um, after this year, let's just say all things work out well, where Ryan Tannehill again shows you in the playoffs he can't get the job done. Malik Willis, let's say, develops quicker than maybe anticipated. Well, if you want to get rid of Ryan Tannehill after this season, it's only an $18 million cap hit. That's it. So Colts eating you know, a massive cap hit on Carson Wentz. We've seen the Rams eat a massive cap hit on Jared Goff, the Eagles with Carson Wentz as well. So teams are eating... 25 to $30 million just to get a quarterback off their roster. The Titans, it's a bargain. They want to get Ryan Tannehill off the roster at just $18 million after the season. That is a very good kind of out the Titans have if Malik Willis develops. And if he doesn't, if he needs an extra year, if he needs those full two years to kind of get his feet wet, get comfortable with the speed of the NFL and the concepts and, and the throwing lanes and everything else, well, then the Titans have two years after Ryan Tannehill to where Malik Willis can take his time and does have the ability to develop uh, in a proper way and timely fashion. So at least for, for Tennessee's perspective, they have the proper timeline in order to develop Malik Willis in order to put him in the best position to succeed. Not to mention, Malik Willis, like we mentioned, being athletic, making plays with his legs, it does kind of uh, fit into the same offense Tennessee runs now. Ryan Tannehill is someone who is athletic, who does make plays with his legs, who does keep plays alive, rolling out of the pocket and making throws out of the pocket on the run. So the offense won't change too much from Ryan Tannehill to Malik Willis, which again, only should help the development of Willis going forward. So I would say A+. 
from the Titans, you realize, look, when you trade A.J. Brown, we got to start thinking about, you know, the future and start, you know, thinking about rebuilding this offense. It starts at quarterback. you got a quarterback who does need a lot of work, but right now you have a quarterback in place in Ryan Tannehill that buys Malik Willis the time he needs to develop, and they have very similar skill sets in that they both make plays with their legs, both athletic, and both can, you know, move and, uh, and throw on the run. So the offense won't change too much from Tannehill to Willis, Willis to Tannehill, which should help the development of the quarterback from Liberty. So I go A-plus for the Titans. Panthers taking Matt Corral here in round number three. I would say it's a C-minus. I think for me, the, the Panthers should have went the veteran route, whether that's Baker Mayfield, whether that's Jimmy G for the season. I don't think drafting a quarterback was the right move for Carolina. Um, going Vent, going Baker, going Jimmy G was the best move, excuse me, uh, to save Matt Rule's job and what is a week NFC. And I do think drafting a quarterback, whether it was, in this case, Matt Crowell, but even if it was someone else, I think it's a mistake because you're not going to see the fruits of your pick in Crowell because kind of like Desmond Ritter, I don't think he's going to get an opportunity to succeed. The reality is, look, Matt Corral is probably going to sit for most of the season. He's raw. He needs a lot of refinement. His game is very intriguing. I'm not 100% sure if it transits to the, uh, over to the NFL. But him sitting all year will probably mean Sam Darnold is going to be QB1 for most of, if not all of the season for Carolina. Uh, it, it's widely speculated, and I believe that this to be true. Matt rules in a playoff or fire position. He either makes the playoffs or he's out as head coach. Well... <laughs> If you are relying on Sam Darnold to be your quarterback to lead you to the playoffs, you're fired. You're dead man walking right now. So Matt Rule's going to be fired. If it's truly playoffs or bust, Matt Rule's going to bust. He's going to be fired. So that means now Matt, uh, Matt Carroll's going to sit on the bench in year number one. Matt Rule's going to be fired. You're going to have a new head coach come on in. And you would think that new head coach is going to have a new system on offense that's going to be different than what the Panthers have right now. So the Panthers are at the top of the draft, if they are near the top, and with Sam Darnold, they very well, very well could be have a top 10 pick, maybe a top 5 pick. You got to think, with David Tepper, with his lack of patience, they are going to draft a quarterback. So just like the Falcons, going to draft their quarterback of the future next season, I think the Panthers will do the same thing. So if you look at Matt Corral, he's not going to have much of a chance to prove himself in Carolina. So you traded, not only did you, did you draft Matt Crow, which again, in a year from, I think in a year from now, things will be very different in Carolina. He's not going to really have a chance to prove himself. He needs time to develop, but right now there's zero time in Carolina to get anything done. You, oh, by the way, you traded up into the third round and you gave away a third round pick in next year's draft. The Panthers had very limited draft resources coming in. Anyway, they had a first round pick. They didn't pick it into the fourth round. Well, they now gave even more draft capital away next year to trade into the third round to draft Matt Corral by a coaching staff that I don't think will be here this time next year. I think it's a mistake. That's why I go C-. minus. I like Matt Corral. He's someone that really doesn't treat me. Like, I'll be honest, I don't know if his game translates over to the NFL. Right? He's a very athletic quarterback. He makes plays with his legs. He makes plays just by being a pure athlete, outrunning a lot of defensive players. He's a good arm. Like, I truly don't know if his style of play, kind of playing in that Lane Kiffin, run-and-gun Ole Miss offense that is snapping the ball every 10 seconds, I don't know if that's going to be able to translate to the NFL. Like, I, I want to see what he has. I want to see if his if his athletic ability, if his instincts, if his small frame can translate over to the NFL.
but I hate to say it's going to be nearly impossible to figure out. Again, there's not a lot of time for Matt Corral to develop. The O-line stinks, by the way, so he might be running for his life, and thank God he's fast, because that O-line is blocking for no one uh, in Carolina. So I don't think he's going to get a fair shake to show you what he's got. I think we're going to have a new coaching staff uh, in Carolina this time next year. And I do think if you're talking about being in the top 10 uh, of the draft, David Tepper is going to be aggressive and push for the uh, Panthers to draft their quarterback of the future, which means Matt Corral, similar to Desmond Ritter, on his way out. And finally, the Commanders drafted Sam Howell in the fifth round. This to me is a B-. minus. This is one of the highest grades I've given out of the five, in part because the Commanders need to sell hope to their fan base. Doesn't take a genius to tell you there's not a lot of positivity coming from that commander's team. Whether it's the play on the field, whether it's a quarterback play, whether it's just Dan Snyder, there's a lot of negativity that surrounds that team right now. Not that Sam Howell is a savior. Right? He is not the savior by any stretch of the imagination. Don't get me wrong. But if Carson Wentz struggles, which look, I think he he's going to struggle. I tried to defend him with the Colts. We saw him end of the year really kind of falter. Now you're going to a Washington team that's just dysfunctional, that has less talent on offense than the Colts had in Indy, less stable of an offense, less stable of a situation. Uh, Carson Wentz, if he couldn't thrive in Indy, is going to struggle in Washington. You, though, at least if you're the commanders, can sell Sam Howell as being the future in 2023. Can sell Sam Howell as being a viable replacement to Carson Wentz. He's someone who made some nice athletic plays at North Carolina, Keeps his, you know, keep plays alive with his feet. Athletic, able to throw on the run, good arm. Here's, you know, a, a playmaker. And when you look at this commander's offense, they're not bereft of talent. They have Terry McLaurin, who's a really good receiver. They have Antonio Gibson, who has, you know, played well when he's been healthy. They just need someone to get these guys the ball in space. And I think Howell can at least do that. He's good enough to get you the ball and, you know, allow the playmakers to go with it after the catch. When Sam Howell was a junior in North Carolina in 2020, he had a lot of playmakers on his team, and his job was just get the ball out, facilitate, like almost like a point guard. He did exactly that. So he is able to just get the ball uh, to players in space and let them uh, make plays. That's all you need from Sam Howell. That's all he can deliver for you. So I do think that at least for, for hope, the commanders can sell Sam Howell, not this year, but next year is being a replacement for Carson Wentz. And not to mention, this is all just hope as well, but this is part of the PR. Maybe if commanders are listening, maybe they want to hire me for this PR. But they have had luck in the past drafting a quarterback in the later round. Remember, they took RG3 number two overall in 2012. Well, that draft, they also later on in the draft took Kirk Cousins. Who's the better quarterback? Kirk Cousins. Maybe this happens again. Now that they drafted Carson Wentz, but they, they gave up draft capital, they traded for Carson Wentz, they, he was brought in to be QB1, just like RG3 was drafted to be uh, QB1 in 2012. Injuries, poor play led to Kirk Cousins taking over. Injuries, poor play could lead Sam Howell to take over. At least you could sell hope that Sam Howell can just be good enough to get, you know, Terry McLaurin the ball in space and go from there. So getting, a, getting Sam Howell in the fifth round, it's risk-free. For the Commanders, there's literally no downside to this because you need any help you can get. So the Commanders drafting Sam Howell, I give him a B-. I give the Panthers a C-minus grade for drafting Matt Corral. I give the Titans A plus for getting Malik Willis in round number three. The Falcons may get an F for drafting Desmond Ritter, and the Steelers get a D for drafting Kenny Pickett. What grade would you give a team who drafted a quarterback, whether it's the Steelers, whether it's the Falcons, the Panthers, the Commanders? What grade would you give a team who drafted a quarterback? Love to hear it, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports or Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. 
and on YouTube with their Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I want to give you three draft picks I absolutely love the most. I want to give you three draft picks I absolutely hated. We'll discuss that when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey here with you on a Monday morning, as always, the 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern hour is sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily filled with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. So as we continue to process here, the NFL draft, continuing to break down some of the, the best and the worst moves here, I want to give you, to kind of put a bow on some of our NFL draft talk here, three picks I absolutely love from the first round, and three I couldn't I couldn't hate more. Absolutely hate it. So we'll go back and forth. There's some good picks, some bad picks. One pick I absolutely loved was the New York Giants taking Kayvon Thibodeau at number five. Right, there is... As you enter this draft, there is one common theme, right? It's not a very talented draft. There's not a lot of players who jump off the screen, especially at the top of the draft. A draft that left a lot to be desired. Not a lot of talented players, not just at the quarterback position, but kind of all throughout. So the Giants, in my opinion, were able to get one of the most talented players in the draft at number five. A draft that, again, always talked about was not having a lot of talent. The Giants are able to get a very talented player at number five, which is a massive, massive win. Now, one of the reasons why Kayvon Thibodeau was there at number five for the Giants' take was because a lot of this nonsense surrounding his interests outside of football. He was, quote-unquote, falling because teams were concerned that he cared about other things. What a, what a shock outside of just playing football. Some people thought he was too arrogant. Well, last time I checked, in order to be a good football player, you got to have confidence in yourself. Right? If you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? So I have no problem with him being too arrogant. I have no problem with him caring about things outside of just football. And everyone is different. Some people only focus on football. Okay, fine. That's how, they, that's how you know, what makes them the best at what they do. Some people need distractions. Some players need to take their mind off of the game, whether it's focusing on politics, whether it's focusing on engineering, whether it's focusing on fashion, whatever you want to do. As long as you are putting in the work in practice, are putting their records of work in the offseason, and showing up on game day, doesn't matter to me what you do outside of your time, especially now when you're professional. So I have no problem that Kayvon Thibodeau's uh, interests outside of football, and that he's too arrogant. So to me, those criticisms are laughable, and I'm glad the Giants didn't fall victim to what, frankly, is silliness. So when you talk about not having a lot of talented players in the draft— the Giants just said, you know what? Screw it. We are taking talent. You know what wins in the NFL? Talent. Talent wins out in the NFL. He's going to be a very talented pass rusher. The Giants haven't had that in a decade or so. So I think for me, the G-man, getting at number five, one of the most talented players in the draft without having to trade up, without having to giving up any assets, to me is a big win. That was absolutely a pick that I love. They weren't getting caught up in the outside noise. They weren't worried about whether his, he truly loved football or he's too arrogant. They said, you know what? This guy can play. We're not passing on him. Talent wins out. 
Now is one pick I love. One pick I hated. The Jaguars taking Trayvon Walker number one. In my opinion, they should have taken Evan Neal. Evan Neal should have been the first uh, player off the board in this draft. Now look, I get the Jaguars just literally gave Cam Robinson an extension at left tackle. I get they just drafted recently Juwan Taylor to be their right tackle. But there are two reasons why I think the Jaguars should have taken Evan Neal still. Number one, he provides insurance in case Robinson or Taylor struggle. They bust out if they get hurt, if their play just deteriorates now going forward, you have a security blanket in Evan Neal to plug in either left tackle or right tackle and you almost don't miss a beat. You have insurance in case one of your tackles, which is a very important position, to draw to block for Trevor Lawrence in case one of them struggle or get hurt. And if he doesn't, if they don't get hurt, if they don't struggle, well, guess what? That's okay because the other reason you should have taken him is because you can't have too many, too many good offensive linemen. Evan Neal, his freshman year, played 13 games at left guard. Evan Neal is the most versatile offensive lineman in this draft. He could play left tackle, he could play right tackle, he could play guard. So you have positional flexibility, again, in case Cam Robinson continues to improve and get better at left tackle, in case Jawan Taylor continues to play well at right tackle, you have now, outside just insurance for one of those guys getting hurt or struggling, you now can shore up your interior offensive line because Evan Neal has played guard before. He can slide in there and still strain this O-line. I get, look, drafting a guard at number one overall, I get is not sexy. I get it, but you know what? The number one goal for the Jaguars this offseason should be keeping Trevor Lawrence upright. I get he wasn't hit at the rate Andrew Luck was hit or uh, David Carr was hit when he was with the Texans. I get that Trevor Lawrence wasn't exactly beat up too much, but in order for Lawrence to succeed, and we saw it in Week 18 against the Colts, the Colts got zero pressure on Trevor Lawrence all game. And you know what? It's not a coincidence Trevor Lawrence had the best game of his uh, uh, rookie year in Week 18 when he had time to throw. So you, if you're the Jaguars, should realize, you know what? Whether Evan Neal plays guard or tackle, it doesn't matter. We're going to get better as an O-line. As long as we keep Trevor Lawrence upright, he's going to have success. So for me, you could never have too much uh, offensive alignment, never have too much talent. Your number one priority this offseason should be be able to keep Trevor Lawrence upright, and that way he has the most chance of succeeding. I would have taken Evan Neal because if he doesn't play tackle left or right, he could still play guard, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you have three out of the five Offensive line positions short up for the next decade. That to me would have been a big win. So I did not like going Trayvon Walker. The Jaguars have drafted a ton of defensive players. They have a ton of pass rushers uh, already there. You mean the argument, excuse me, their strength on defense or their strength of the team is defensive line that front four. I get you can make the argument and you want to make a, a you know already a strength even stronger. I think the Jaguars would have been better off going Evan Neal, number one, to either provide extra offensive line depth and have him play guard for a little bit, or if either of your tackles that you have get hurt or struggle, you could have plugged him in and still kept going uh, forward without having um, you know, to worry about too much about a backup trying to keep Trevor Lawrence's blind side uh, clear. So I, for me, I did not like the Trayvon Walker pick at number one. They should have went Evan Neal. One pick I did love, the Lions taking Jamison Williams at number 12. Oh, Detroit, they are desperate for playmakers in offense. And they got one of the best playmakers in this draft at number 12. Jameson Williams is the most, by far the most explosive receiver in this draft. 11 touchdowns last year at Alabama that were 30 more yards. You're talking about a home run hitter. 
He's a tremendous deep threat. He's great uh, run after the catch. And he was unguardable. And this is important to remember. Because unlike previous years for Alabama receivers, where you've seen a lot of Alabama receivers get taken high in the first round. But unlike those previous recent years at Alabama, there weren't multiple top first round wide receivers on the field that distracts the defense. Right? When you had a few years ago, when you had Jerry Judy, well, Jerry Judy, you know he was playing with? He was playing with Jalen Waddell. He's playing with Devontae Smith. There was other distractions on the field that defenses couldn't solely try to take away Jaylen, uh, Jerry Judy. Same thing with Jalen Waddle, same thing with Devontae Smith. All these Alabama receivers had different distra- or different distractions on the field to force the defense to not solely try to take them away. And if it was a receiver, was Najah Harris, who had a tremendous 2020 season. Well, guess what? Jameson Williams didn't have that security. No offense to John Mechie. He's not exactly a, a burner, not exactly a receiver that left a lot of defenses truly, you know, shaking in their boots. So Jameson Williams last year was able to put up 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns for the most part with defenses focusing on taking him away. With him being by far the number one priority of defenses to stop, he was still able to put up massive yards, massive touchdowns, and still be unstoppable. That is a playmaker. That is a guy you absolutely need to get uh, on the on the field and in the draft. And that's why I love the Lions aggressively trading up, seeing Jameson Williams fall, uh, Jameson Williams fall to the top ten. The Lions say, "You know what? We need playmakers. This guy's a playmaker. Let's go get him." And I love that the ACL injury did not scare off the Lions. Look, the Lions are not a playoff team next year. So even if Jameson Williams takes his time and he's not ready to start the season, that's no problem. You don't need him to be on the field week one. You don't need him to truly you know, hit the ground running in his rookie year. Like, let's say if the Packers drafted Jameson Williams. With the lack of receiver talent in Green Bay, with them having a Super Bowl or bust um, expectation this year, if, the, if, let's say, the Packers were aggressive, they traded up and drafted Jameson Williams. Well, they would need Jameson Williams to come in right away, hit the ground running, and have a Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson-like impact in order for them to have success. You don't need that from Jameson Williams in Detroit because the, the Lions are going nowhere in 2022. So you're able to have him take his time in rehab, able to have him in 2022 if he doesn't hit the ground running as a rookie, that's the problem get better. And when you draft, inevitably draft a quarterback next year, you'll able to have, you know, now a great playmaker and someone who, who distracts the defense and can make plays down the field. You have that option for whoever, whichever quarterback you draft next year. So I love the aggressiveness. I love the fact that the Lions identified a playmaker in Jameson Williams and grabbed him wide away. I love that pick. Speaking of another team that traded up uh, to draft a receiver, what I didn't like is the Saints taking Chris Olave moving up to do so. Saints traded a third and a fourth round pick to about five spots. And to be honest, they didn't even draft the best receiver on the board. At 11, Jameson Williams was there. They could have taken Jamo. They could have taken the most explosive receiver in the draft. Instead, they took Chris Olave, which to me, I thought was a little bit of a reach. No disrespect to Chris Olave. He is an extremely productive receiver at Ohio State. He's fast. He's a good route runner. He's good hands. He's the uh, all-time leader in touchdown receptions at Ohio State. Obviously, having Michael Thomas on the team, the Saints have had uh, past success with Ohio State receivers. So I said, okay, you know what? Why not keep it going? They got a good one already that worked out for us in Michael Thomas. Let's go get another one in Chris Olave. I think it was a little bit of a reach. I think Jameson Williams is more explosive 
um, and just provide a different element to this offense than what Chris Olave brings. If you're going to trade up, if you're going to be aggressive as the Saints were, I would have taken the best receiver on the board, which in my opinion was Chris uh, was Jameson Williams, not Chris Olave. So I do think the Saints made a mistake in being that aggressive and trading up and not even drafting the best receivers still available on the board. That's why I did not like the Saints and their aggressiveness picking Olave over Jamo. Lastly, one pick I absolutely loved. The final pick I loved. The Jets trading up to get Jermaine Johnson. The Jets had a really damn good first round and a really good overall draft led by Joe Douglas. But out of those three first round picks, Sauce Gardner at four, Garrett Wilson at 10, Jermaine Johnson at 26. I was most impressed and loved the Jermaine Johnson pick at 26 the most because it showed the conviction Joe Douglas had in trading back into the first round to get a player that a lot of the NFL soured on. Right, there was rumors, Jermaine Johnson, on Wednesday, the night before the draft, there was some thought he could be a sneaky top 10 pick, maybe even the Jets' first pick at number four. So there was thought he'd be a top five pick in the NFL. And instead, he slid all the way down to 26, and credit to Joe Douglas for getting back in there and taking advantage of what other teams wanted to avoid for whatever reason. Look, Johnson is exactly the player the Jets need and have been missing for the last 15 years. And they haven't had a pass rusher in New York that has, you know, that wreaks havoc that was a one-man wrecking crew. They haven't had that really since John Abraham. It's been a long, long, long time for gangrene since they had a disruptive pass rusher that got consistent pressure on the quarterback. And now we look at Jermaine Johnson, who's, you know, traveled a road, let's say less traveled, going and starring in last chance to you going to a JUCO, then going to Georgia, not playing a lot, then transferring to Florida State. You look at the production he had in uh, at Florida State this year, 12 sacks, 18 tackles for loss, ACC Defensive Player of the Year. That is exactly what the Jets are missing and exactly what they need. Part of the reason why the Jets had the worst defense in the NFL last year was because they got zero pressure on the quarterback. They were tied for the 26th most sacks in 2021. Tied for 26th. One of the worst teams at causing and forcing pressure on the quarterback. So when you're sitting back there, doesn't matter if it's Tom Brady, doesn't matter if it's Mason Rudolph. You give a quarterback time to throw, he's going to pick you apart. So good for the Jets for changing that. Good for the Jets for moving up, being aggressive, and getting a guy in Jermaine Johnson that can put consistent pressure on the quarterback. He's a first piece now for the Jets to reverse that trend of getting no pressure on the QB. So I love that pick by Joe Douglas. I love the aggressiveness in trading up to go land a player like Jermaine Johnson at pick number 26. And finally, a pick I hated. Steelers drafting Kenny Pick at number 20. Steelers have a lot of holes to fill. And for me, a, a pick at quarterback, especially a pick at quarterback in the first round, felt very unnecessary. And the Steelers already have Mason Rudolph. They already have Mitch Trubisky. You don't need a third quarterback on your roster. That's not going to be the franchise guy. Like, Kenny Pickett is not going to be a franchise quarterback in Pittsburgh. Let's just call it for what it is. He has had a ton of opportunities so far at Pitt to show us who he is. And you know what? For 75% of his career at Pitt, he showed us who he is, which is an average quarterback at best. Like, a lot of people get caught up in his 2021 stats. 42 touchdowns, 7 picks. But you know what I'm going to get caught up in? The first three years of his Pitt career, where he was a four-year starter at Pitt. The first three years as a starter with the Panthers, he averaged 13 touchdown passes, eight interceptions per season. 
You tell me. Do you really want a quarterback, and do you really trust a quarterback can be a franchise guy in the NFL where three out of the four years, he averaged 13 touchdown passes, eight picks a season? No. 2021 is the anomaly. Uh, To me, he's not Joe Burrow. He's not a guy that was a late bloomer. He had a chance to show us who he is for four years of the start. That's a large, very large sample size. Three of the four years are average at best. I don't think Kenny Pickett's going to all of a sudden figure it out like he did in senior year and have that translate over to the NFL. This, to me, was a mistake by the Steelers. I think they reached on Pickett in general and drafted in the first round. I don't think they need a quarterback at number 20 and said they should have shored up, which to me, uh, they need help at the offensive line. They could have done that. They could have had Tyler Smith or Tyler Linderbaum. Didn't do that. They could have gone Devontae Wyatt, Devin Lloyd, Quay Walker to help shore up that defense in that front seven. Instead, the, the Steelers won quarterback. That, to me, is a mistake. I hate the pick because there is needs on defense and especially needs on both sides of the offensive line that could have been had. And instead, the Steelers get a third quarterback now that is not going to be the guy, not going to take this team to the promised land. And for me, hurts the Steelers' chances of drafting a quarterback next year, which is going to be a deeper and more talented quarterback class. I don't think the Steelers are making the playoffs this year. And they could have used that higher pick next year to draft a quarterback that truly, truly, could be the franchise guy for the next 10 years. Instead, to me, they make a mistake and a reach in taking Kenny Pickett, who's not going to be the guy. And for the most part, throughout his college career, is an average quarterback at best. To me, that's who he is. That's why it's a mistake by the Steelers drafting him. That's why I absolutely hate the pick from Pittsburgh. So here's what we're going to do here. So you have a very, very, very short break. When we return, I'll give you the biggest winner from the NFL draft Round number one, when we return, says it's the Ryan Aki Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, closing out a Monday show. I want to give you the biggest winner, in my opinion, from the NFL draft. Biggest winner, I think, is the Baltimore or is the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. They were the biggest winner because, especially in round number one, Howie Roseman was able to get the biggest bang for his buck with the two first round picks he had in getting Jordan Davis, a freaking nature, at pick number 13, and then getting a known commodity, cashing in that first round pick along the third rounder to uh, send to Tennessee in order to get A.J. Brown back. You get a stud receiver in A.J. Brown. Um, and at 24 years old, give him an extension to where, for me now, that puts Philly in the catbird seat to getting a big-time quarterback next year. I don't think Jalen Hurts is going to be the guy. Um, I don't think he'll be the franchise guy for the next 10 years. So in reality, what's going to happen is I think this, the Eagles will have Jalen Hurts, rightfully, by the way, get 2022 to show you what he's got. I don't think he's going to be able to show you that he can truly be a franchise guy. But now getting A.J. Brown, pairing him with Devontae Smith, Having Miles Sanders there, there's a nice young core nucleus of players on the offensive end uh, for Philly that is attractive to if you are, whether you're a disgruntled quarterback, like let's say Kyler Murray, if there's no deal done between him and the Cardinals this offseason, whether you're Lamar Jackson, who was very upset with the Ravens this offseason or uh, on Thursday after they traded away uh, Hollywood Brown, you now are an attractive landing spot for either of those quarterbacks if they decide to force a trade and force the way out of either Arizona or Baltimore. 
So Philly sets themselves up to be an attractive landing spot for a disgruntled quarterback. And if, you know what? If Lamar stays in Baltimore, if Kyler gets a deal done with the Cardinals, no sweat. The Eagles got two first-round picks in next year's draft. I'm sure they'll aggressively trade up. They can draft a quarterback in a deeper and more talented quarterback draft next year and give that guy a real chance to succeed. Now, if you get a young quarterback, that is the perfect way to develop when you have A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Miles Sanders, Dallas Goddard, a good offensive line in front of them. Those are some real good weapons and pieces right there for Philly to develop a young quarterback that they get in the draft. So the, the, the trade and, and the acquisition of A.J. Brown is massive, in my opinion, in order for the Eagles, not just for this year, really, because I think they're a playoff team. Um, I don't think they're going to win the NFC East. I still think that's the Cowboys' division to lose. Um, but still, in a, in a pretty poor NFC, this to me is you are still a playoff team. And now you set yourself up for the future, because like I said, you are now putting yourself out there as either being a great place to incubate a young quarterback or set yourself up to be an attractive landing spot if a disgruntled quarterback decides they went out, they want to go somewhere else. One of the top teams on the list will be the Eagles. So I love this trade for, for, uh, for A.J. Brown, even more from the future than for the present. Like, he's 24 years old. You just signed him to a four-year, $100 million extension, so he's going nowhere. He's going to be that stud number one receiver the Eagles need. Him and Devontae Smith, if Devontae continues to develop, could be a really good 1-1A one combination. So I love this move by Harry Roseman and the Eagles. I think, to me, they are the biggest winner from the NFL draft because you got a freak of nature in Jordan Davis who's going to be a disruptor on the defensive line now for the next decade, and you get a stud number one known commodity receiver. And A.J. Brown, 24 years old, going nowhere. You didn't give up a ton either. First and third on pick is nothing for a good receiver of his stature. So for me, big winner, Philadelphia Eagles. So I'll do a physician on the Ryan Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. Appreciate all you tuned in and started your week with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. As a reminder, we will be back on Thursday, so make sure you check us out at 9 a.m. Eastern right here on the Worldwide Sports Network, whether you check us out on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, or the Ryan Hickey Show page. Make sure to throw us a like there. We're on Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, also WWSRN underscore radio, and we're on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Ryan Network. So, hey, between now and Thursday, have a tremendous rest of your week. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 